Hey, church, thanks for joining me. I hope you enjoyed last week as Pastor James uh, took us through the last section of the book of James in chapter 5. I know I've really enjoyed the series and I hope you have too. We thought we'd do something a little bit different today because we started this series back in June and so much has happened since then. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look back across the 13 weeks that we've looked at this series and we've pulled out some key moments from each of those weeks and we're going to watch them together now. But what I'd encourage you to do first is go grab a Bible. Perhaps you've got one on your bookshelf, perhaps you've got one on your phone, but I encourage you to grab it out. Open up to the book of James, because before each of the clips, we've put the reference from that week on the screen. And I'd encourage you to pause um, the video, pause the audio, and read that section of the text. And as you read, what I'd encourage you to do is to ask yourself the following questions. What does this passage say to me? What does it tell me about God? What does it tell me about humans? What action does it require from me? And how should it prompt me to pray? Enjoy watching this with us. The message of the book of James is really quite simple. I'm going to give it to you now, all right? I'm not going to wait for the great reveal in like eight weeks' time. I'm giving it to you up front, and we'll give it to you over and over again because the message is really, really simple. There is one central theme to it, and it is that people who know Christ should act like they know Christ. It's quite simple, isn't it? People who know Christ, who have encountered Christ, who have discovered a new way of living, should live in a new way. Our thoughts, our actions, the fruit of our lives should look different because we know Christ, because we have received him as our Lord and Savior, and because we have entered into his family. And so James, throughout his book that we're going to look at, implores us, each one of us, into a new way of living. He implores each one of us into loving what we know is true. And that can be a really hard thing, can't it? There's something incredible about watching um, children develop. A number of you are parents or you've got um, nephews and nieces. And as I always say, and very sincerely, that... um, all of you who call Horizon home really are like aunties and uncles for my children because they spend so much time here. They probably, as I particularly, expect you to pick him up. Um, they, you know, I'm sure some of you have wiped their runny noses and cuddled them when they've cried. And so we are so grateful. Cindy and I are so grateful for that. And I know a lot of other families feel the same, but one of the consequences of being around small children and being around their parents is the litany of um, videos and of photos and of little um, quotes that they will share with you. I am totally guilty of it. Um, I have, I'm sure, and I've seen a number of your eyes glaze over over time as I've said, oh, look at this cute photo or look at what they did this week. And you're like, oh, wow, they ate a piece of corn. Fantastic. That's so exciting. We're so pleased. But we see, and there's a lot of excitement, isn't there, in the development of children. We really enjoy watching children grow, watching them experience new things. A couple of weeks ago, Judah was sitting next to me at the table and I was doing some work and he was there with a piece of paper and a pen. Um, And he started just writing these sentences. And so he was writing out and I looked over at what he was doing because as of like seriously, six or seven weeks ago, his writing was just scribbles on a page. He, he liked the idea of it, but he couldn't actually do it. And so I looked over and he was actually writing words. He, he wrote a sentence that said, Sam, the cat is fat. Um, poor Sam. 
but he wrote that sentence. And I was like, oh, this is amazing. So I called Cindy and she came in and we all created a big fuss. But the thing is, as exciting as that was for us now, when Judah is 15, I don't still want him to be writing Sam the cat is fat. I want him to have developed further. I want him to have grown. I want him to be writing about more significant things. You see, growth is a natural way of life. As we, um, as we develop, we should be growing. And it's true for our physical lives, but it's also true for our spiritual lives. You see, our physical lives start with a birth, but our spiritual lives also start with the new birth. Because I would say to you this morning that we mustn't fall into the trap as a church and as individual believers. We mustn't fall into the trap of pretending that we're not tempted. Christians are really, really good at that. We are really, really good at pretending that we've got it all together. We're really, really good at pretending that we are holy and righteous, uh, that we're the most um, faithful, faith-filled person on our row. Um, if you're sitting on your self today that you've certainly got that title but we, we're good at doing that we're good at turning up to church events and small groups and um, church on a Sunday and pretending that we're not tempted but James writes just like he talked about troubles remember he said not if but when he does the same thing about temptation he doesn't say if you are tempted he says when you are tempted and so the question is not for us, will I be tempted? It's how will I respond when I am? How will I respond when that enticing nature of the world of sin creeps up in my life? How will I respond? And so I want to encourage you, let's not turn up on a Sunday. And if you're visiting us this morning, we are not a group of people who get together and pretend we've got it all together. Um, because we really don't. We're working it out. We're journeying through faith and through life and seeing God grow us. And it's an incredible thing. But I want to encourage you this morning. When temptation comes, James gives us this really key model. He says, remember that it's enticing, but it's hollow. He says, remember the consequences of it. Remember the consequences of handing yourself over to sinful living. But he also then says, remember the goodness of God. Remember that God is good and he loves you. And you just need to seek him and he will provide you with the wisdom and the comfort that you're looking for. So just as a, a way of summary, those verses sort of come together and they paint this picture of James writing this letter to religious people, people who know God's law, people who are just like us. But James keeps pushing them and us to take the next step. He's saying, don't just hear it, do it. You know, the people James was writing to, they would have been facing their own trials and temptations. You know, they're battling with their own stresses, their own fears and their desires. And James says, slow down, take things in. Don't express yourself so quickly. Don't let those things around you drive you to act impulsively and with anger. And so what he's saying instead is, hear God's word, let it implant itself in you, and then once it's had time to grow, act on it. Don't deceive yourself by thinking that what's written in, knowing what's written in the Bible makes you a godly person. Don't do Satan's job for him. 
Because if you do, you're like the person who forgets what they look like. And if that's the case, what's the point of even looking in a mirror at all? It's worthless. Instead, act on God's word, knowing that when you do, you will be blessed. Be true followers of Jesus by caring for the most vulnerable and disadvantaged people in this world. Reject the immorality of the culture around you. Be careful about your own anger and pride and let your faith show up in your actions. And so in these few passages that we've read, it's really giving us cause for reflection. We need to ask ourselves some hard questions. Do we listen more than we speak? Are we careful about what we say? Do we keep our anger in check? Do we let God's implanted word grow within us? And do we put into practice what we hear in God's word? It's asking us, what's the next step for you? you know, what issues is the book of James calling you to confront? I believe that we should love all men and we should be welcoming, loving, caring, compassionate people. Does it take effort? Yes. And I just want to encourage you that if you ever see yourself and you feel, oh, look at that person, just ask God to show you his heart for them, to show you his love for them, to show you his passion to have them either saved or they're already a brother and sister. They're actually related to you. So I want us to start to see the world in two parts. The saved who are brothers and sisters whom we have an eternal relationship with and those who need to be saved. Those who need to hear the word of God and to be brought into the kingdom of God. And I tell you what, I don't think anyone's been saved by being told, oh, you're different, you're lesser. I'm better than you because I'm a Christian. I'm better than you because of my background. I'm just better than you. I don't think anyone's ever been saved by that. How are people be saved? By being shown the love of God. And how do we show the love of God? By loving them. By caring. By not being discriminatory. By being welcoming. By being open. By doing what God does and looking beyond the external appearance, looking beyond the face of a man and seeing the heart. It seems like Paul is saying through these passages that we've read that we are saved by faith in Christ, not because of our works. And it seems like James is saying the opposite. It seems like James is putting out there an argument for a works-based salvation, that it is actually through the things that we do that we are made right with God. But I say to you this morning, and this is the place we're going to get to at the end of the message, but I'm going to give you the, the uh, core of it up front that James and Paul are actually in complete agreement. They're actually in complete agreement. You see, their words actually fit together. A man named uh, Simon Manchester, who um, is, a, is a theologian and a preacher, put it a lot better than I. And so I'm going to read uh, a little bit of what he wrote. He said, Paul is thinking of the person who needs to be saved. What does he say to the person who needs to be saved? He says, put away your works. It doesn't matter how wonderful you are. Don't tell me what a good person you are. It won't impress God. It won't win your salvation. Just put out two empty, humble hands and take hold of Jesus and you'll be saved. And on the other hand, James is looking at the Sunday 
10 o'clock congregation. And he's describing what it means to be saved. That eternal life brings change or revolution. James is saying to us, please, friends, don't tell me what you know. Don't recite things to me. I want to know what's happening in your heart. I want to know what is happening when you get behind the front door and the office door, not just the church door. It's a bit confronting, isn't it? Because James is writing to you and to me. He's writing to the slightly sleepy Christian sitting in the pew on a Sunday morning. Um, he's writing to us. He's writing to me. And he's challenging us with some really, really difficult things. You see, uh, Paul and James, they're actually talking about different sides of the same coin because they're both actually talking about faith. And if you're going to write one thing down or capture it in your phone, perhaps it should be this, that Paul is describing the root of our faith. And James is talking about the fruit of our faith. People can tame all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and fish, but no one can tame the tongue. It is restless, uh, it is restless and evil, full of deadly poison. Sometimes it praises our Lord and Father, and sometimes it curses those who have been made in the image of God. And so blessing and cursing come pouring out of the same mouth. Surely, my brothers and sisters, this is not right. Does a spring of water bubble out with both fresh water and bitter water? Does a fig tree produce olives or a grapevine produce figs? No. And you can't draw fresh water from a salty spring. And so James goes on to say this clear thing. We can't fix the problems of our tongue on our own. You see, he says that the same mouth, the same tongue praises the Lord our Father and almost in the next breath, it curses those who have been made in God's image. That's the same tongue. I wonder how many times you've come to church, you've sung his praises, you've had a coffee and encouraged and felt encouraged and on the way home, the conversations very quickly without even realizing it turned into um, criticizing Maybe it's criticizing your spouse or, or someone else. Maybe it's criticizing the other driver on the road. Maybe it's just thinking into a new space of work tomorrow and, and bad-mouthing other people. But what James is saying, and he gives us these comparisons of you don't get this with a fountain. You see, a fountain is either fresh water or a salt water. You can't get it with a fig tree because a fig tree produces figs. It doesn't produce two different types of fruit. But he's making a point here that it happens to us with our tongues. And the reason it happens to us with our tongues is because of our divided heart. You see, the issue is not the tongue. It is controlled, not on its own. It is controlled by us and by what's in our heart. And isn't this the same point that Jesus was making back in Matthew 15? That our heart controls our tongue. And so that's a place of hope. You might not think that it is, but it is a place of hope because it says to us that change is completely possible. But you can't do it on your own. But when was the last time you heard of someone who was just wise? That was their defining quality. They were just a wise person. And I don't think we hear about it very often because our culture doesn't value it very highly. And so our culture tends to place a high value on things like status, knowledge, wealth, beauty, things that I think are often associated with 
power or influence. Those are the things that people tend to seek after. But in contrast to those things, James and the people that he's writing to, they sought after wisdom and they prized it more than all those other things. And it made me think, do we see the value in it? As we read these verses in James 3, I think this is a great time to evaluate our lives and ask, is this what I seek after? Do I seek after wisdom? And so I'm going to be reading through James chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. And James begins, begins talking about wisdom in verse 13 here. He says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done, in the humility that comes from wisdom. So James is saying here that wisdom isn't just about having head knowledge. This is way more than just about your education or your intellect. He says, those who are wise among you should be able to show it by their good life and deeds done. And so wisdom has as much to do with action as it does knowledge. And by this stage, you're probably not surprised to hear James talk about doing deeds and taking action. It's really the core of James's letter. But what strikes me here is that along with a good life and doing deeds, James starts to mention behaviour. He says that we should live a good life and do good deeds in the humility that comes from wisdom. He's saying, if you're wise, and I should be able to see it by the good things that you do and by your behaviour, your general conduct, which will include humility. Your life will not only have good things in it, but it will be accompanied by humility. There will be this meekness or a gentleness about that person and a distinct lack of pride and arrogance. What we can forget is that in God's eyes, sin is sin. With God, there are not different scales of sin. And the penalty for any sin, no matter how large or small we would consider it, is death. And we are only freed from this penalty through Jesus' death on the cross. Just a few minutes ago, we took communion. We remembered that Jesus had died for our sins, that our sins were cleansed because of his death and resurrection. And that's something we need to keep remembering, that that is the only thing that frees us from the penalty of our sin. We can forget how our sin hurts God, how devastating our sin is to, to our relationship with God and with others. Only as we truly repent and humble ourselves do we understand our need for God's grace and are able to receive it. It's only as we humble ourselves, if we understand how much we need God's grace, are we able to receive it. And that's what James points out in verse 10 where he says, Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Trying to exalt ourselves is useless. It brings strife, frustration, unhappiness, anger. We weren't created to be our own God. Humbling ourselves before God, realizing his greatness and submitting to his authority, repenting of our sinful pride brings grace, peace and life. Just as the people James wrote to need to hear this, we also need to be reminded of these things. Something we need to remind ourselves over and over again. 
we are to put aside anything that would affect our relationship with God. Put aside pride, covetousness, wrong desires. It's not easy to do this. It goes against what our human nature wants. But if we continually humble ourselves before God, repent and receive his grace, we will see such a change. If you want your life and relationships to be more peaceful, to be more satisfying, to be more fulfilling, then really take note of what this passage says and each day put into practice. Each day submit to God, humble yourselves, receive his grace, seek him for who he is, for what he desires to give you. Seek him for the good things and most of all seek him for who he is because that's where you will find what you need is in knowing God. Draw near to him. As it says, he'll draw near to you. You see, what he's doing is he's challenging those of us and many of us live in this way um, uh, from time to time and sometimes more often. Um, he's challenging us that, that often we consign God to the backseat of our lives. And I want to take you through a couple of uh, points here. You see, often where we involve God and we include God in the miraculous. So where we need a miracle, where we've reached a situation, where we're stuck, where we feel trapped, uh, where we feel helpless, then we go to God. We go to God and we seek him and we pray and we, and we believe that, that he's going to do something in our lives. But we consign him in everything else to almost being on the edges, to being on the fringes of it, rather than being at the centre of our day to day. We deal with things like our work and, and our families and our finances and our various responsibilities. We, we want to deal with them all ourselves and leave the big things, leave the problems, leave the miraculous to God. And what James is challenging is that we shouldn't do that. And he makes the point of this in, in uh, verse 13 where he says, Look here you who say, today or tomorrow we're going to a certain town and we'll stay there a year. We will do business there and make a profit. He presents us with five things, five patterns uh, that most of us engage in. And the first one is that we set our own schedule. You see, he says, when we say today or tomorrow, many of us are used to living to our own schedule. He also says that we select our own path. When we say we'll go to this city or we'll go to that city, many of us too are selecting our own limits. We say we'll spend a year there or we'll do that for this length of time. He's challenging us that we decide on our own activities when we say, well, I'll engage in this um, practice or I'll engage in that business. And we predict our own outcome when we declare, well, I'm going to go and do that and I'll make a profit. I want to say to you this morning or whenever you're listening that these things in and of themselves are actually not a problem. You see, God doesn't mind us making some plans. He actually calls us to be good stewards of our time, good stewards of our talent, good stewards of our resources. But what we need to make sure is that we are not um, taking those things and we're trying to control them. We're holding them with tight hands. We're holding our schedule. We're holding our outcome. We're holding our limitations. We're holding our path. Um, we're holding those things with tight hands. Instead, he tells us to focus and look at it another way. You see, in verse 14 to 17, he says a couple of important things. He says, firstly, we really have no idea what the future will bring. Well, we know that. We're living that reality now. 
I think if we had have asked each other a couple of years ago, um, picture a world when, uh, none of us would have pictured this reality. And yet, here we are. And James reminds us of that. He reminds us that in the midst of our, all of our plans and, and all of our um, expectations about what life might look like, that we really actually don't know what the future will bring. In verse 3, James says, it's the corrosion of their wealth that will testify against them. Not the wealth itself, but its corrosion. If you've held on to your money for so long that you see it start to corrode, it means you've done nothing with it. If your clothes are moth-eaten and they've been sitting in your wardrobe for so long not being used, it's this image of acquiring more and more stuff just for yourself without any thought for other people, not using it in any practical way, with the irony being that you'll watch it fade away and rot because you've hoarded up so much stuff that you don't actually need. You've got so much stuff just sitting around, it's going to waste. And what's crazy about this is that it's so counter to our culture today. Usually if somebody passed away and they had a bunch of stuff, we would say, man, what a blessing. What a blessed life that person lived. But what scripture says is no, all those possessions that person built up for themselves, they're actually going to be evidence against them. In other words, their assets have all of a sudden become liabilities. And these verses paint a picture of a courtroom where you've been accused of a crime. You've been accused of neglecting the poor and the disadvantaged. And you're standing in the courtroom, you're pleading your case, you're saying, no, that can't be true. I gave to charity. I went to church. And the evidence starts being brought out against you. And it's all your possessions. It's all the excesses and the luxuries. Here is all the stuff that testifies against you. The stuff that says you have hoarded wealth. And so in this picture, the crime that you've been accused of is neglecting the poor and the disadvantaged. In other words, you haven't been practicing true religion. James is saying, here's the proof that you weren't about the widows and the orphans. And there's a clear link here back to James chapter 1, verse 27, which says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this to look after widows and orphans in their distress. Looking after widows and orphans in their distress is about caring for the most vulnerable and disadvantaged people in society. But for quite a long time when I would read a passage like this, I would think almost that I just had to try a bit harder to be patient that I had to not let injustice or, or troubles or trials affect me. But I want to challenge that thinking today because James by no means is giving a Christian equivalent of just, you know, suck it up. He's not saying, oh, just try not to let it get to you. Just try to take a deep breath and get on with life. In fact, he's challenging us that in the face of injustice, in the face of adversity, to adopt a new perspective, to replace our thinking with uh, the truth of Christ's return. He's telling us to live now in the light of a future reality that Christ is returning. And when we think about that, what should that remind us of? 
Firstly, it should remind us that God is holy and God is just. And he's not going to let injustice go unpunished. In fact, all of us are going to have to account for the things that we've done. And, and that should, I guess, uh, make give us reason to pause, but it should also give you a sense of courage. That those who are wicked, those who are leading injustice are not going to just get off scot-free while they uh, look like they are prospering now, that they are accumulating, that they are living free of the consequences of their decisions, that there is coming a time where all of us will have to give answer for the ways that we've lived. And God is just and he is righteous and he will hold them to account for those things. But the second thing it should remind us of, and take courage and encouragement from this, that when we've received him as our Lord and Saviour, when we've accepted Christ's sovereignty over our lives, that we should live in this confident hope of the life that we will step into when he returns, that he will make all things new. So James's first challenge to us, is to look ahead, look ahead to Christ's return. His second challenge to us is to look back. And he tells us what we should be looking back towards. He says, look back at these examples, these people who, in, who endured suffering, who endured struggle, who endured injustice, and continued to serve God faithfully. And he gives us a specific example there. He tells us, look at Job. Now, most of us would know the story of Job. And if you don't, I'd encourage you to go and have a look at it. Because Job loses everything. He loses uh, his wealth. He loses his health. He loses his family. And he ends up having these people come around him. His friends come and say, this is a consequence of your sin. But Job knows that that isn't the case. His wife comes to him and says, "Um, Job, why do you continue uh, to maintain your integrity? Just curse God and die. But instead, Job endures with patience. He continues to seek God. And he says this, he says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And we see that in that, that at the end, as as James speaks to, that Job, because he patiently endures, he sees it all return to him uh, multiple times over. James goes on to give us uh, another example of who we can look back to. And he says, look at the prophets. Because they provide to us an example of those who endured suffering in the will of God. They stayed in the will of God. They continued to faithfully serve. And we can look at a number of um, these people from the Old Testament. People who uh, faithfully served and spoke on behalf of God. I read these closing words in James. I realized that what he's in describing here is what our community should look like. And it's a community where God is at the center, where people are so focused on and so in love with God that they reach out to him in prayer for everything. Then from this place of humility, they pray together, they confess their sins, they reach out to the elders of their church in their time of need. It's a community that accepts the fact that they're only human, sure, but at the same time, they still expect great things from God when they pray. And when someone strays from the faith, they don't alienate that person with harsh words of judgment. They pray, they forgive, they restore. This is what our community should look like. 
So as we've been reading through this book with you, I hope what you've seen is that we're not pulling anything crazy out of there. Most of this, I hope, is pretty straightforward. And my hope then is that you would start picking up the Bible if you don't already and just getting into it and reading it for yourself so that when you come to verses like those that we've read today, you'd be able to reflect on them and ask, am I so close to God that my first response to everything in life is to go to him first in prayer? Do I pray with others? Do I have trusted godly people around me that can pray for me? Do I believe that my prayers can be as powerful as those of Elijah? I'd say act upon this book. My prayer as we're done with this study is that this will inspire you to get into God's word more where your natural response just becomes, I want to know him. I want to know God. I want God to be my first love so that when life gets difficult, that's just my obvious choice to go to him. And when I'm just so excited, my first thought is to praise God and worship him. When anything happens in life, it's about God and about going to him. He's at the center of my life. 